Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. Now, what are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campy Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your sent-in live questions. However, we often don't have enough time to get around to all the live questions that get sent in. But I want to make sure you guys don't have to sit around and wait too long to get those questions answered. So what we do is we gather them up and we address them here on companion videos, those ones that did not get addressed on the live show. And we have fallen behind a little bit. We've been having some streaming problems. Um, without going into the technical aspects of it, we've been having some problems with YouTube, with our stream, um, our live upload stream connecting properly and being ingested by YouTube properly. And we've been having some issues, but we believe that those problems have now been fixed, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. Hallelujah. Indeed. It seems like the problems have been fixed. So hopefully we'll find out tomorrow when we do the John Campus show live tomorrow. Cause like today we couldn't do it live. And anyway, as a result, we've been following a little bit further behind, but I want to make sure you guys aren't left waiting too long. You sent in those questions with those, with those great topics. You supported the channel while you were doing it with the tipping. So I want to make sure we don't make you wait too long. So let's get into it right now and start getting caught up. Shall we? And we're going to start getting caught up by going to Double Crit, who writes, oh, that's right. We left off on Double Crit yesterday because he's got a big one. One of seven. All right, here we go. I know what you're thinking. Another Wonder Woman 84 chat. Okay, yep, here we go. We've had a lot of Wonder Woman 84 talk going on. But, I, but hopefully I'm treading new ground here. I think you've been making an unproven assumption about the plot that literally everyone has to renounce their wish to avoid calamity. On rewatch, I see that Steve is the one who says everyone has to renounce. But when listening to the Mayan, he asks, no one renounced their wish? Does everyone have to renounce or only someone? Clearly, Steve doesn't know for sure as he's just a regular dude. I believe, based on the events depicted in the movie, calamity from wishes isn't a guarantee. Rather, the destruction is directly caused by short-sighted and impetuous wishes that have unintended yet logical side effects. In the end, the president almost causes a nuclear war with Russia. That has nothing to do with the guy who wished for coffee or those who wished for Porsches. If they renounce, great. But if they don't, the consequences wouldn't stretch out beyond Washington, D.C., Catastrophe isn't some all or nothing thing where the mother of a sick child keeping her wish means this would that the world would still go on, uh, which is still going to end. It's a collective result of many fickle wishes compounding on each other or one to two foolish wish wishes with disastrous consequences. I know there's many other issues with Wonder Woman 84. I just wanted to try to address the specific question. How can everyone possibly renounce their wish? And why I don't think it had to be literally everyone. Hopefully, this is a reasonable perspective. Uh, also, regarding questions like, what if a kid wished everyone was a dinosaur? Well, if Maxwell Lord wished that everyone except his son would die, I think it's fair to assume such wishes either can't or won't happen. Uh, otherwise, there's no movie. All right, thanks for sending that in. And yes, we have been getting a lot of questions and comments and observations about Wonder Woman 84. Of course, one of the big pivotal ones has been the fact that, you know, this really flawed mechanic in the movie that everybody has to renounce their wish, which is kind of clearly stated. And when we come to the end of the movie, anyway, there's a whole bunch of problems throughout. So what Double Crit is kind of suggesting here is, okay, it is said in the movie that everyone has to renounce their wish. But what if that's not true? You know, what if that's not true? 
What if they only made that assumption, but it turns out, no, they didn't need everybody to undo their wish. Turns out only a couple of people need to undo their wish. And the world will be fine if just a couple of key people undo their wish. There is a couple of roadblocks with that thing. Okay, number one, there, there is, uh, there's something known as a, a narrative uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I'm, a friend of mine who's a writer calls it a, a, a narrative anchor. There are certain points in a movie where they give the audience what are called narrative anchors. At least that's what I, a couple of friends of mine who are writers call them that, which is basically this. Narrative anchors are pieces of information given to the audience that the audience member can rely on to use as their foundation in constructing their understanding of the movie as a whole. Okay. So like a narrative anchor for man of steel is Clark is not from earth. He's from a distant world called Krypton. Now the audience, when given that narrative anchor can now foundationally build the rest of their understanding of the movie around that narrative anchor point, right? Now, that's a big, obvious example, the Man of Steel one, but almost every movie has these narrative anchors, a bit of information given to the audience that the audiences can use that one or several anchors as their foundational understanding as they build their perception, their understanding of the movie as it unfolds. That scene was clearly intended as narrative anchor. It was a bit of exposition being given by the characters to the audience so the audience can follow along why the upcoming actions have to happen and why those upcoming actions are important. So Steve basically saying, and Diana agreeing and everybody else there, everybody has to undo their wish. That was a narrative anchor. That became a foundational truth of the movie that we built our rest of, the underst of our understanding of the movie around as the movie then progressed. But let's assume for a second that that wasn't a narrative anchor, that Steve was just wrong and Diana was just wrong in, in accepting what he was saying and all that. And that was just nonsense. You know, he should have never said it in the first place, right? Okay. That still raises, that raises new problems then. Because you're saying, you know, you say in your last part there, uh, you know, what if uh, certain, certain wishes couldn't be done? The president could wish for nukes that would end the war, that would end the world, but tons of other people can make unreasonable wishes, right? So a wish is a wish. It, literally anything can be granted. So the problem that this creates is that, okay, so let's say, well, to avoid calamity, only those who wished for something that could cause calamity need to undo their wish. But in a planet of five or six, however many billion people we're up to now, in a planet of five to six billion people, whatever our population is now, you can't tell me that only a handful of them would make a wish that could bring the world to the brink of calamity, right? You can't tell me only a couple of them, because I, I am telling you there's a 10-year-old kid out there who would wish for everybody to be turned into dinosaurs. There, There is... A kid, hell, there may be, there was a college student out there that would wish the Transformers were real and descended to Earth from, from you know, distant Cybertron and came to Earth in search of Energon. 
You cannot tell me that there wasn't a 12-year-old Bruce Wayne. Now, this creates the other problem, that there wasn't a 12-year-old Bruce Wayne who didn't wish for Thomas and Martha Kent, or Kent, Thomas and Martha Wayne to be alive again. Well, then there goes the DC Cinematic Universe. Little Bruce Wayne grows up with his parents now. No need for the Batman. You know what I'm saying? Like, we would hit, what we would have is, if it wasn't explicitly stated in the movie that everybody had to undo their wish, then by the time we get to the end of the movie in Diana, it's Christmas time. She's out walking around. She comes across Scarf Guy. Um, and, you know, that would be a world where little boys would be walking around with their pet Tyrannosaurus Rexes. It would be a world where millions of people who had died would have been brought back from the dead. It is a world where somebody would have wished for cancer to be cured. Are they going to undo their wish? Nope. So now that world that Diana's in has no cancer. There's no cancer. So I appreciate, actually, I appreciate very much. You're trying to look at this thing from a, from a different angle, different points of view. That's what we as fans should be doing when movies are really laid out bad logically. But again, everyone that we come up with, including myself, every possible solution I come up with creates other roadblocks and other potential problems. And that's, those are a couple of the ones that I see there anyway, but keep thinking about it. Double crit, keep thinking about it. Or at some point we just throw up our hands in the air and say, you know what? Nope. Wonder Woman 84 was just a logical mess. There are good things about the movie. Don't you, like, I'm always talking about Wonder Woman 84 like in negative terms, but the reality is there are some really good things about the movie, some things about the film um, that I really did enjoy. But overall, it really was quite a logical mess. But anyway, keep doing it, though, Quirky. Keep doing it. Or double quit, crit, I should say. Keep doing it. All right, next up. Kian uh, uh, Shingler writes, a movie which scored really low on the ratings, but I think is brilliant, is Law-Abiding Citizen. The villain, Clyde Shelton, that's uh, 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 King of Sparta, uh, Gerard Butler. Uh, the, the villain, Clyde Shelton, I mean, that's Gerard Butler's movie, uh, is also worth a mention as one of the best villains, though I appreciate it's all subjective. Here's the thing about Law-Abiding Citizen, at least for me. Uh, and let me see if I can bring it up here. Because law-abiding, I have a, I had a lot of fun with law-abiding citizen. Uh, let me see if I can get it here. So, oh my gosh, 2009, it's already like 12 years old. Dear heavens. Anyway, uh, Gerard Butler, Jamie Foxx, and I thought it was quite good for most of the film. For most of the film, I thought it was quite good. The problem, though, with it is this. The first two acts are fantastic. The third act of the film really falls apart. Now, again, that's, that's a subjective opinion, right? That's not fact. That's just a subjective opinion. That's my subjective opinion. But I think part of the reason why you see um, the not best reviews about it is because I think a lot of people felt the same way I did, was that the third act was just kind of a mess. Now, I thought the first two acts were so good that I still enjoy Law Abiding Citizen. Um, and, and I'm a sucker for Gerard Butler movies, I am. But but it, it really was quite a disaster at the end. And I don't know, I, I again, it is all subjective. Just because I think Darth Vader's one of the best doesn't mean he is. 
I mean, so I, I wouldn't count this as one of those personally, but if you've never seen law abiding, abiding citizen, you should give it a shot. If for no other reason, yeah, I think the third act falls apart a bit, but the first two acts are fantastic. So if you haven't checked it out, you should go and check it out. All right. Thanks for sending that in, Kian. All right. Next up, uh, rebel plot armor writes one of two. Thought Light of the Jedi was okay. I guess that's the new um, uh, High Republic novel. Uh, Great first third of the book. A nice nod to the Legends universe. However, the Republic as a character was boring. Super naive and the repeated use of its new catchphrases felt a little creepy to me. Um, The villains did not really excite me either. I was was expecting their leader to be Lobo. Uh, There are always the typical Star Wars verisimilitude breaks too. I hope I enjoy the next book more and it's not a repeat of the, in my opinion, dreadful Aftermath series. Yeah, I was, I ditched on Aftermath. I think I got halfway through the second book, but I remember, I I still remember exactly where I was. I started reading the first Aftermath on a plane. I was on a flight, I had a five-hour flight coming back from the East Coast and I got into it. I'm like, am I going to finish? And I finished it and I got into the second one. It's like, I and I tapped out on the Aftermath series. I am only... I've got the audiobook of the first um, High Republic thing. I'm only about three hours into it. I am enjoying it so far. I'm enjoying it so far. Oh. As far as the idea of the Republic being kind of naive, I think any utopian situation you create, I mean, that's this is the whole idea of the High Republic. Why the Republic stood for so many generations is because there was an idealism to it. And I think a lot of us, when we look at scenarios or characters, that are built on idealism. A lot of us are skeptical about that and we call it naivete. And that's fine. All I can say, like I said, I'm I'm not even a full third of the way into the book yet. So far, I'm enjoying it. But, you know, you obviously finished it. So let's see how I feel about once I'm done. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that, Rebel Pilot. Appreciate that, man. All right, next up. Sergeant Ward writes, Hey, John. Do you think Disney could release the original theatrical cuts of the original Star Wars trilogy in the same way Warner Brothers is doing the Snyder Cut? Nope, uh, because I don't believe they're legally allowed. Um, from what I understand, when George Lucas sold Lucasfilm and Star Wars and everything to Disney, one of the provisions he put in that deal was that, because he was adamant about this by the end, was that the new versions of Star Wars Empire Return of the Jedi are the definitive versions of the movie. I wish he hadn't done that, but they're his movies. He had the right to do that. The, those are his definitive versions of the movie. And uh, I don't think he ever wants the original trilogy to ever see the light of day again. And I don't think Disney even has that option. Because you know, listen, Disney's all about making money. And Disney knows you pull out on you put out on Blu-ray the original theatrical cuts of Star Wars Empire Return of the Jedi, they know that'll make them millions. They know that. And of course, they'd like to do that, but they can't. I think the only way that will ever happen is if, um, you know, once George is, you know, hopefully this day is very, very far away, but once George is no longer with us and his estate, probably his kids, Maybe then they give Disney permission to do it. I don't know. But as long as George is here, we ain't going to get it. At least at least that's my understanding. 
And, you know, anything can happen. George may wait, may wake up to remember George Lucas once said that after um, the last crusade, Indiana Jones, the last crusade, that was it. No more, no more Indiana Jones movies. No more. We're done. That was as good as a way to end it as possible. And it was, it was the perfect ending to that. No more. But what happened? He changed his mind. So in theory, George could change his mind again. He could go back to Disney and say, tell you what, I'll have my lawyers drop the papers. I'll let you out. We, we can get rid of that clause that says you can't release the original trilogy. But I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, hopefully I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, so don't don't hold your breath, Sergeant Ward. Don't hold your breath. All right. Next up, uh, Capri, uh, Capri Grant writes, hey, John and co. I was uh, just wondering that if Kevin Feige goes to Alan Horn with the with an idea for a Marvel slash DC crossover trilogy, how likely is it that uh, Hamada Warner Brothers is contacted? Does Ke- Kevin have that much pull at least to get those conversations started? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, one of the reasons Alan Horn has been so successful over the length of his career, and one of the reasons... He is one of the best of all time, one of the best studio guys ever in the history of Hollywood is the fact that, you know, he works, he works with those people who are under him, you know, and he gives them a lot of leeway. And Kevin Feige, absolutely. If Kevin Feige came to Alan Horn, of course, those conversations would be entertained. It doesn't mean an ultimate green light would necessarily be given, but absolutely. Here's the thing. Kevin Feige ain't going to do that. Kevin Feige doesn't even like this. Right now, Kevin Feige doesn't even really like having the situation with Sony that he does with the Spider-Man character. Kevin Feige does not enjoy have not being the final sign-off on what happens to Spider-Man, to one of the characters in his MCU. He doesn't enjoy not having the, because he's got the final sign-off on everything else. He's not a fan of this. And to do that with DC plus that would just make, that would just be a big, huge convoluted mess of a film. There, there's nothing, I, I just can't see there being anything redeemable about it, but that's my take. So the issue isn't whether or not, you know, Alan Horn would entertain an idea from Kevin Feige. Of course he would. I just don't ever see Kevin Feige doing that or ever wanting to do that. And then why would Hamada want to do that either. So I, uh, I don't know. Again, the problem isn't Horn. I think the problem would be Kevin Feige himself. That's just my guess, but who knows? Kevin Feige is obviously the guy to answer that. All right. Grant also writes, seeing as Disney isn't completely abandoning the premier access, uh, wouldn't it be better for them to create a premium Disney plus tier instead of charging six 99, they charge 14 99 for the higher tier and release premier access movies. there free of charge. No, nope. They they don't they wouldn't see the benefit of that. I mean, if they're gonna do premier access, then you have to consider them as special one-offs, right? What Disney, and I remember Bob Iger talked about this at D23, they don't want to be like uh uh Peacock that has like three different tiers of sorry, they if you're a Disney Plus subscriber, you're Disney Plus. And now they have these special one-off things. Now, remember, I don't know that I don't think that these premier access things are going to catch on with Disney plus they did it with Mulan. It was a total disaster. Now we said though, if you remember, we said they'll do this again because it's too small of a sample size. One attempt is too small of a sample size. They're going to try it 
at least one more time, maybe two more times. So it was with no surprise that they said they're going to try it again with Raya and the Last Dragon. Will that have any more success than Mulan did? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. But, I mean, they really don't want to create a multi-tiered system with their service. The pure simplicity of, if you're a Disney Plus member, you're a Disney Plus member, period. Now, that doesn't mean I don't personally like the idea that Peacock is trying something different. They have a free tier. They have a, a, a low tier for $5 a month. And then they have a more higher access tier, like with uh, more content and no ads and stuff like that. I kind of like that they're doing that. They're trying to be a little bit different. But Disney seems pretty clear that, nope, we like simplicity. We like to have clear messaging to our consumers. If you're Disney Plus, one price, boom. And if they do premiere access, they're going to be considered special events. So, yeah. And I just don't think they would see the the uh, benefit of that. So I don't think it would work in their favor. So anyway, that's just my thought on that. All right. Uh, Capri Grant also writes, uh, as far as you know, John, how are TV subscribes slash showrunners paid for scripts they write? The WGA minimums show their salaried weekly for X weeks, but they are also paid the minimums for scripts they write for an episode in addition to their salary. And, and listen, no, listen, every contract is unique. And I have never been a showrunner. Well, I have, but not 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 for these type, not for real like broadcast shows. I've never been a showrunner, so I simply do not know. Uh, my guess is if you are a showrunner, like remember the showrunners run big writers rooms and there's a good documentary out that you can probably find. Go find it. It's actually just called showrunners uh, made by some people I know. And it's really good. Um, if you want to know more about the world of showrunners than that, but my, my guess would be not having ever been a showrunner myself is that they are probably, it's probably just all contracted and every contract for each one of these guys is done differently. And it's probably more a salaried contract than anything else too. So that's my best understanding of that. I wish I could give you a better answer, but I mean, you, you could also be asking me, how do they make nuclear fission work when, uh, you know, in, in adopting power delivery for a country? I, I really couldn't give you an answer to that personally, but I think it's probably, it's very unique from individual to individual, contract to contract, showrunner to showrunner. That's my guess at any rate. A good question though. Uh, Frank Shatter writes, Hey, John, WandaVision was the first Marvel content to be rated PG, with the first two episodes being 30 minutes each. Reviews are out, and they are pretty good. What's your thoughts on the PG rating and the 30-minute episode approach? There is no PG, there is no PG rating. Um, the, the rating system, PG, PG-13, are these are... Uh, designations given by the Motion Picture uh, Association, the MPA. The MPA, as far as I know, only gives these designations to movies. They don't give them to TV shows. So uh, I, I'm really unclear about that. You know, why don't I take a second here? Uh, Wanda Vision PG rating. Let me just see this here. Uh, da, 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 da. so games radar, I'm looking at this right now here. I'll bring this up so you guys can see it too. Uh, game radar is saying the age, uh, the age rating for one division has been revealed to kick off Marvel phase four. The first MCU chapter will be officially more suitable for young children. That's because one division has been rated T O T V P G. Okay. 
By comparison, all the MCU movies at this point have been rated PG-13, though it's a... See, this is the thing. This is what I was getting at. It's a The MPA gives the movie rating scale. The Motion Picture Association gives the movie rating scale. This is a completely different set of movie, things. So it is not a PG rating. It is, P, it is TV PG. Uh, though it's a different rating scale, PG-13 offers strongly cautioned parents, younger children. Children is, roughly speaking, equivalent to the TV-14 rating. Blah, blah, blah. So it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. So... It doesn't mean anything. I mean, we'll watch the show and then we'll get a sense of how it does or does not measure up to other things. But this isn't an apples to apples comparison and it's different ratings boards that hand these things out. So a TV PG may mean one thing in television, but it may not just be, oh, then it's a direct equivalent to what a PG would be in a movie theater. That's not necessarily the case. So once we get like three or four of these Disney plus MCU shows out and we see what TV ratings they get. And we know that they generally get PG 13 in theaters. Then we'll be able to start making some comparisons and start drawing some, uh, some equivalencies. But right now it really doesn't mean anything. So I would not give that any thought whatsoever. Just remember TV PG is not the same rating as PG because they're completely different ratings boards giving them and they could mean different things. So yeah, I wouldn't think about that uh, at all. 30 minute episodes. Yeah, I'm not thrilled. I'd like to have longer episodes, but um, you know, let's see. I'll, I'll take listen, I'll take whatever they're willing to give me at this point. Hell, give me 12 minute episodes and I'll just be happy. We've been waiting a long time for these MCU shows to pop up on Disney plus. We're finally here. Um, so yeah, I would like it a little bit more than 30 minutes. I would like it to be more than 30 minutes, but Hey, like I said, I'll take what I can get and I'll smile and be grateful. All right. Next up, uh, Capri Grant again writes, I hope they do Loki justice in the show and not just play him for jokes and make him job to everybody. Loki was a prince of Asgard and trained at the highest levels of Asgardian combat. He dominated Captain America and could give Thor movie one and could give Thor a fight. No, listen, I've never felt they've always portrayed Loki as a major like alpha level threat. Even when he, I mean, but part of the reason we love Loki is his charm and humor. That's one of the reasons we love him. I hope they don't stray away from that. But there's also a reason he's also considered extremely dangerous, right? And when you look at Thor Ragnarok, when they finally let him loose to go nuts on fools and they had the big combat going on, he was wrecking shop, right? And he's fearless. He's not afraid of anybody. That's why that one scene in Ragnarok, when he realizes the Hulk, there's like, oh, because he did get his ass whipped by the Hulk. But everybody other than Thanos gets their ass whipped by Hulk. So um, I, I have no doubt. Listen, if they think so highly of Loki and they recognize the love so many people have for this character, that he's going to be in that first year of MCU standalone shows, I think you're going to see a good degree. And by the way, seeing the trailer for myself, it seemed like they were giving him, if he's being treated as a, a level threat, as an alpha level threat, I think that says they've, they've got the respect for him, but I also don't want them to lose that charm. I don't want them to lose that humor. I want, I want it all. I want them to have it all. And I think they're going to give it to us. I really do. All right. Thanks for that, man. Next up. Uh, Marie Seifring writes in, Hey, John and Rob, Rob's obviously not here today. 
About the Loki series, two in a row about Loki. Since uh, Frigga is the person Loki is closest to, that's, of course, his mother, played by Rene Russo, uh, over under 30% that during the series, Loki visits uh, Frigga and tries to prevent her death during a dark elf invasion of an alternate timeline. Thanks. Uh, I mean, look, narratively, that could be the case. They could do that narratively. But there, uh, I couldn't possibly give any sort of guess on an over-under when we don't know really, I mean, the, the time variance authority is part of it. So it's going to be going all over the place. I really don't know. I mean, it's a possibility. I don't suspect we're going to see Rene Russo in here. I don't suspect we're going to see Anthony Hopkins because while he was closest to his mother, he had the most reverence for his father. Remember, the, the, one of the things that makes the first Thor movie so great <clears throat> is that ultimately it's a movie about a father and his sons. And the one son who all he wanted in life was affirmation from his father. That's it. When, when it comes to, this is what, this is the brilliance of Kenneth Branagh's Thor 1. It's about, Thor aside, it's about this Loki kid. It's about a son who feels like he's lost in the shadow of his big brother and just wants affirmation from his father and to prove himself to his father. And that's really what it's all about. And I was already enjoying Thor a lot. Like I was loving Thor. And then they got to that scene in the first one when you realize that when he let the frost giants in, he was never going to let a frost giant lay a finger on his, even if it's an adopted father, he was never going to let a frost giant lay a finger on his father. It was all a setup to look good in front of, in front of Odin. That was really the core at the heart of it. It was, it was a lost son wanting the affirmation of his father. Even if his father was willing to give it to him anyway, he just didn't recognize it or could receive it. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. That first Thor movie, there is a reason I call it the second most underappreciated and under, uh, undervalued comic book movie of all time. The number one is obviously Man of Steel, but number two is that Thor movie. What Kenneth Branagh did with that first Thor movie to me is absolutely unbelievable. But, but as far as bringing in Renee Russo or anything like that, I couldn't possibly give a guess because I know so little about what is the substance of the show going to be. I'll tell you what, though. Ask me that question again after we see episode one. Once we see episode one of Loki and we get a little bit of an idea about what's the substance of this show like, then I can probably give a guess as to whether or not we might see, you know, a Rene Russo pop up. But until then, I couldn't even venture a guess. It's a good question, though, Murray. Thanks for asking. All right, next up. Meals writes, um, hey, John. Just seen Trial of Chicago 7. It's my favorite movie of 2020. What a great film. Such a fan of Sorkin's writing and everything he does. Such a fantastic rhythm with his dialogue. That judge, though, wow. What character for you is so convincingly irritating that you just want to slap them? Who, in just in Trial of the Chicago 7? Uh, well, I mean, the judge... You know what the funny thing is? There's a lot of creative, creative liberties. A lot of creative liberties from all reports... That was that Aaron Sorkin took with the actual story of the trial of the Chicago seven. For instance, the entire ending scene was really a complete fabrication, but weirdly enough, 
from everything that I read, the most historically accurate thing was probably the judge played by Skeletor. Go look it up. Um, the, he was probably and oddly the most accurate thing from what I've read and I understood. Uh, that dude was really over the top. Um, I was honestly really at many times for the film more annoyed with Sasha Baron Cohen's character. Even though he's one of the protagonists and a hero in the film, and at the end of the day, I loved watching him on screen, but man, part of the reason I loved him is because he really irritated me sometimes, which I can only imagine is Aaron Sorkin wanted the audience to feel what the other characters around him probably felt. We love him and respect him, but oh my God, he can be completely irrational and irritating sometimes. So there's that, yeah, but at the end of the day, it was the judge. At the end of the day, it was the judge meals. Anyway, thanks for writing. Uh, Seattle CFs right? hey Rob, what time are the Seahawks playing next weekend? Well, obviously they're not because they lost, but hey, listen, no mocking here. I mean, my team didn't even make the playoffs this year. I suspected they wouldn't uh, when they signed Cam Newton to be there thing. Speaking of the Seahawks, I mean, I had been, there was a long time where, you know, Russell Wilson hadn't signed his extension yet. And I was like, I really thought there was a chance that uh, New England could get uh, Russell Wilson. <coughs> oh my goodness. How good would that have been? <coughs> Sorry. Bit of a uh, bit of the soda went down the wrong pipe there. Um, <coughs> but we got Cam Newton, which was a horrible mistake. And I said so from day one. And uh, they didn't make the playoffs. Listen, you can't have the greatest quarterback in the history of the game in uh, in the GOAT, Tom Brady, and then just expect nothing to change next year. You know, it's funny. Tom Brady uh, goes, takes New England to the playoff. Well, takes New England to the Super Bowl nine times, gets six rings, makes the playoff like 50 years in a row. And then he leaves and they don't make the playoffs. He goes to a team that hasn't been to the playoffs in what, 12 years? I can't even remember how long it's been since the Buccaneers were in the playoffs. Very first year back, very first year he's playing with the Buccaneers. They're in the playoffs, win their first playoff game. <clears throat> it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. But yeah, don't be too hard on Robert because I'm, I'm sure your favorite team has not made the, I mean, the Seahawks have been on a, ever since Coach Carroll got there, they have been one of the, first-class teams in the league. They really have. <clears throat> Obviously, the the class of the NFL has been the Patriots for the past 15 years, 20 years, whatever. But, you know, ever since Coach Carroll got to the Seahawks, they have been one of the absolute crown jewel uh, organizations in the league. They are good and a threat year in, year out. And um, you watch, they'll be back again next year. They just fired their offensive coordinator too, by the way. Anyway, A-Train A writes, while I like Ahsoka, Cal, uh, Cal and hate Ezra, I always liked how Luke was the last Jedi. The OG trilogy made us feel tension because we knew that Luke was the last of his kind, like Aang. That's a, a, a airbender uh, reference there. Uh, them even being alive immediately invalidates what made Luke special at all. I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Luke is still Luke. Luke Skywalker is still the greatest Star Wars character of all time. He None of that is, and if you, if you doubt that for a second, look at the worldwide reaction when Luke shows up in the final episode of Mandalorian. 
If you doubted for a second that Luke Skywalker is the greatest Star Wars character, the cornerstone of the entire Star Wars franchise, look at the worldwide global reaction to him showing up in the last episode of Mandalorian. Has any of that glory, has any of that legend been hurt in the slightest? No. Now, I agree. <clears throat> I continue to be displeased why how they continue to rewrite Star Wars history. I get it. We need new characters, and some of them have to be Jedi, and we need them to be in these eras. But listen, the, the message of the original trilogy was clear. There were no Jedi left. There was Yoda on Dagobah. There was a ghost Obi-Wan, and there was Luke, and that was it with one possible other being Leia that Yoda makes a reference to. And that was it. But now we find out there, oh, no, it turns out there's a, there's a clubhouse of uh, 7,000 other Jedi scrambling around the universe. I mean, it just, did I just sound Irish for a second? I didn't mean to. Anyway, um, you know, it, and I'm not a fan of that. I'm not. But some of the results have been really good, Right. I mean, Cal is is a great character brought in from the video game. It's He's a great character. I have never liked Ahsoka Tano. Never have. But I really like what they did with her in Mandalorian. And I never would have thought that I would say I'm looking forward to an Ahsoka Tano show. And yet here I am. I, I am because I really like what they did with her in, in the, that one episode of The Mandalorian. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to do. But but that doesn't change the fact that fundamentally, I still don't like the fact that they've changed Star Wars history to accommodate these new stories. But they did. So inst I can choose as an individual fan to just be dismissive about anything that they do or embrace it. Say, yeah, I don't like the fact that they had to change Star Wars history, did it. So just so we're clear on the record, I don't like that. That being said, it's here. And do I like the stuff that they're doing or not? And they're doing some pretty good stuff. But again, I, let me emphasize again, A-Train, that this whole idea, it invalidates what made Luke special, all that kind of stuff. Look at the entire planet's reaction to when Luke showed up. Has his specialness come into one ounce of question? Has his prominence come into one ounce of question? I would argue that it has not, sir. So I think we're good. And I think we're good. So I think we're good on that. Anyway, that's just my thoughts. Thanks for writing that in, A-Train. All right, next up. The Wakandan Forever writes, I attended my first ever uh, pop-up drive-in last night. They showed Wonder Woman 84. I will never see that film the same way again. With everything that has happened with the past year, it made me appreciate the theater-going experience even more. Yeah, listen, I, I can relate with that because I remember, you know, I, I have to watch New Mutants again, but... When I saw New Mutants in theater, I drove three and a half hours to Las Vegas just so I could go see a movie. Then I turned around and drove three and a half hours back because no theaters. The closest movie theater open to me was in Las Vegas and New Mutants was out, made the drive out there. And I was not thrilled with New Mutants. Well, that was all right. It's all right. I have never watched it again. So I wonder if I watch it again, will I still think it's eh, okay or will I think it's total garbage? Maybe the reason I didn't find it to be total garbage because it was six. It had been six months since I had walked into a movie theater. 
or at least almost six months. It had been a long time since I'd been in a movie theater. And just getting to go into the movie theater and be there and in the seat with popcorn and watching a movie in a theater. Oh, it was so great, man. It was so great. Now, Ann and I have been to the drive-in a number of times this year. And we're going to go again. But, um, yeah, I agree, man. Going, just, going to the movie theater just makes life a little bit better. It just makes life a little bit better. And anyway, I'm glad you had that experience, Wakanda. All right, Ryan Lohner writes, I just rewatched American Beauty for the first time in years. It's been a, it's been a beat since I've watched that one too. Uh, let's just say, uh, you know, a movie has issues when the presence of Kevin Spacey isn't the thing that's aged the worst. <laughs> well, listen, I, 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 the only movie, the only older Kevin Spacey movie I've watched since the whole Kevin Spacey explosion thing uh, was. Uh, the Usual Suspects, which is one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, I talk about that movie a lot, but I haven't really. Like I said, it's been a it's been a beat since I've seen American Beauty. So I maybe if I watch it again, I'll I'll know the the stuff. What particular? I, th- I think I'd probably have to watch it and experience it to know exactly what you're referencing. But it's it's been a while since I've seen it. But I got to admit, it's hard. You know, it's it's. When stuff that goes down like what went down with Spacey, it's difficult to go back and watch older Spacey films. Um, I mean, it's not, I don't know. My weird, my mind works weird in that way, I suppose. Anyway, I, you did just remind me, though, I do need to watch American Beauty again sometime soon. All right, Dave XP writes, I don't care if the Oscars are this year or next year, but I'll be damned if uh, Husevich doesn't win Best Song Award. I'll tell you what, that of course is um, Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell's, I can't even remember the name of the song. I can't even remember the name of the movie. It's about the the song competition. Anyway, Eurovision, that's what it is, Eurovision. Um, That song is awesome. I remember after I watched Eurovision, I think for a good week, I was I was playing that that Husevik song on YouTube over and over and over like li- probably five ten times a day, probably five or ten times a day. I was pl- I was playing that, and because it's just so good and it's emotional, it chokes me up, makes me think of my hometown of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. It makes me think about that. So yeah, man. Hey, listen, I'm with you. Whenever they do the Academy Awards, I don't think they should do one this year. I think they should postpone it till next year, but whatever. Whenever it is, that song should be nominated for Best Song. It was fabulous. It was integral to the movie itself, and it's just a beautiful piece. I am completely with you on that. They should absolutely do that. All right. Thanks for that, man. Let's now move on to who is next after Dave XP. Um, now, I'm, now I'm just singing the damn song in my head. Anyway. She's singing Icelandic. Anyway, next up, James Argenta writes, what High Republic book are you listening to? The, the first one right now. I'm currently listening to part one, A Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule, learning about the great disaster. That's exactly where I'm at. I Like I said, I'm three hours into it. I think I'm at six hours until impact because, you know, the whole first part of that book is all this countdown. And so I have not gotten to the great disaster yet. I haven't gotten to that point yet, but I'm about three hours in. And uh, I'm getting about a half hour a day. I'm getting through about a half hour of it a day. So I hope, hopefully I get uh, caught up here pretty quick. But listen, I, 
I'm not blown away by it yet, but it's just the intro. And so far I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. I feel like it's really taking me into the star Wars world and this new setting that we've never been in before. So, so far, so good. Let's see how I feel once I get to the end of the book though, James. Okay. Next up an anonymous viewer writes, Moff Gideon, whatever game you're playing, Mando, it won't work. You cannot stop my dark troopers. Mando, yeah, I know, but he can. <laughs> I know, but he can. I'm telling you, man. I That scene was great, but we talked about this on a companion video not too awful long ago. About the inevitable question came in, which scene was better, the Vader scene or the Luke scene? And while I love them both, you know, and I said this on a previous, uh, on a previous companion video, but I lean towards the Vader scene was better because really at the end of the day, I mean, they were both, you know, master force wielders just ripping through cannon fodder, right? That's both of them. But Luke was doing it to just machines, right? To just robots, terrifying robots, capable robots, no doubt. But that Vader scene is elevated because it was human beings with fear and terror. And like, you don't feel fear and terror for a robot. I mean, the robots are going to say, oh, cool, right? But when guys, oh my God, these guys are going to die, right? It elevates the scene. I'm not saying it was harder for Vader to go through those soldiers than it was for Luke to go through the dark troopers. But as a scene, there's so much more weight to that Vader scene because of that element that just wasn't there. They both scenes share most of the same elements, but the Vader scene has that extra element of horror that simply isn't in the Luke scene. And again, that's not me dissing on the Luke scene. I love the Luke scene, but I always just give that little bit of an edge to the Vader scene. Anyway. All right. Stupid questions writes, when you say it's all subjective, your opinion is just as valid. No one has just no one has to justify liking or disliking a movie, etc. Hi, how, how how hyperbolic are you being? If someone says I hate the Last Jedi because Asians, uh, I don't see you giving them much credence. Well, no, because now you're not now you're you're changing the parameters of the discussion. Now you're changing the parameters of the discussion because now you're bringing outside character flaws into the discussion about just an impression a piece of art makes on, on us on an equal playing field, right? If someone were to say to me, you know, I watched, you know, uh, The Last Jedi, uh, and it just didn't work for me. I watched these things and I didn't like this conversation. I didn't like that conversation. I didn't like what this happened on screen. I didn't like that. And even if it's all things that, that I did like, it's like, hey, Whatever, you watch it didn't work for you. Now, if we start to bring in outside character flaws into the discussion, it doesn't change the subjectivity of film, but maybe I'm not going to hang out with you. Because like, if you come in and say, you know what, um, I just, you know, I loved, I loved Rocky, but I didn't like it that they let, like, I liked Rocky 3, but it was, it's just, it's terrible that they let a black guy beat him. Uh, clever Lang, right? Well, okay. Now we're not just talking about the subjective impressions that art make. Now we are talking about a character flaw you have that you're bringing into the discussion. So it changes the parameters of the discussion altogether. So that's a, that's a completely different thing. Stupid questions. Although that wasn't a stupid question. Anyway, Steve Pintor writes, Hey John, 
I just saw your your picture standing next to your bike, and I thought you grew out a beard. A lot of people did, actually. I was in shock. I hope you're doing well, my friend. I'm stuck at home for two weeks due to having COVID. Oh, man, that sucks. Get through it. Be safe. Be healthy, my friend. Uh, be safe out there and bring on the filthy. All right, so for those of you who don't know what, what he's talking about, uh, this past weekend, Ann and I... I do love that picture. Uh, Ann and I... Uh, we bought a, f- a couple of bikes not too long ago, and we like to go out for walks and rides and, and different things like that together. And there's this one picture we took this Sunday of uh, me with my bike. But as you can see, I've got, you know, a mask, but I pulled it down for the picture. But because it's a black mask, uh, people, including, you can see right, hold on a second, right here. You can see even Dennis, even my friend, Dennis, Dennis then right on. And, and right here, you see Christian Harloff, both of them wrote in and say, I thought for a second, you drew like a Khabib, a Habib, a Nurmagomedov beard or something like that. Like I had the Habib beard. It's like, nope, I could literally never, ever grow a beard. I mean, it literally would take me about six months, but I'm going to follow up on that because what happened then? So Harloff saw this picture and he said, dude, I totally thought you were growing a beard. And then he, he made this. <laughs> Let me see if I can zoom in on this a bit. Oh, I can't. He made this picture, which kind of gave me the Aaron Rodgers beard. I don't know if Harloff, I didn't know Harloff had these Photoshop skills. So I don't know if Harloff made that himself or if he got somebody to make that for him. This is here's what Campia would look like with the beard. It would, the funny thing is, it would seriously would take me about three months. Whereas most of my friends, that would take them maybe six days. Six days, maybe 10 days to grow that kind of a beard. It would literally take me months, three months minimum to do that. I just, I just don't grow facial hair. It's, it's just really kind of embarrassing, especially for an Italian, especially for an Italian. Uh, anyway, thanks for that, man. All right, next up. So you you weren't alone, Steve. A lot of people thought that was a beard on me at first. All right. Uh, the Wakandan Forever writes, John and film fan community, we Wakandans are, are very passionate and opinionated. We have our issues. Killmonger comes to mind. The passing of Chadwick Boseman, King T'Challa himself. We have endured and are alive and well. We love you, Wakandan Forever. Yeah, it's, it's still going to be a while for everybody. <sighs> you know, everybody was really shaken by the loss of Chadwick Boseman. I really think everybody's going to be hit with it again when they do start shooting the new black Panther. And then it really is going to become real for a lot of people, um, which is really too bad. Such a talented guy taken far too soon. Anyway, uh, Seattle Seahawks again, the Capitol police did a better job stopping people this weekend than the Seahawks offensive line. Uh, Give the Seahawks a break, man. Give the Seahawks. There was much worse performances than anybody else. All right. Uh, Michael Forrest writes, Hey, John, I was watching your Chronicle review and you had some 27 by 40 movie posters on the wall. What's the best way to get, uh, to get them from my local AMC? I'm likely going to want the Dune and possibly Snyder cut posters. Thanks and keep up the good work. Well, listen, honestly, you don't need, if all you want is, is, uh, you know, the standard, what is the standard 27 by 40? I can't remember. If all you want is posters, just go on Amazon and buy them. I mean, they're pretty cheap. They are pretty cheap. Like if I if I go over to Amazon right now, hold on a second. Uh, Amazon. Uh, let me think of a, just a random movie. Let, let's say Shawshank Redemption, right? Uh, Shawshank Redemption. 
poster. Uh, 27 by 40, right? I just go there and instantly, there's a whole bunch you can just buy, 27 by 40 posters. I So if you can just, you know, wait for a day or two, you know, a couple of days for like the companies to make them and, and put them out, you don't need to get them from AMC theaters or anything like that. You can just order them yourself. Like all the posters I had on my walls were all completely posters I just bought online. Then you can pay like 50 or 60 bucks and get a pretty decent framing job. Or you can just go to like a, a Michael's or some hobby store and just buy some cheap frames to put them in. I mean, it's really cheap. It's really expensive, but you, you absolutely don't have to go to a movie theater and try to get them to give them to you. That's a little bit of a hard sell. That's, that's a hard sell to get. For me, for a while, that was easy if I ever wanted to do it because I worked at AMC. So I could just get those posters if I wanted them. But no, honestly, all the ones that I framed and everything up, those are all ones that I just bought online at some point. Uh, anyway, hope that helps, Michael. All right, next up, Lobster Johnson writes, John, we have to stop meeting this way. I'm not quite sure what that's a reference to. Uh, anyway, Lobster writes, hey, John, I've been watching Peter Capaldi and Jodie Whittaker Doctor Who for the first time. I have to say I'm not a fan. How do you have two fantastic actors and the showrunners don't know what to do? The previous seven seasons did. It's a discombobulated mess. Well, I mean, I... I obviously cannot give an opinion because I don't watch Doctor Who. So I don't know. For all I know, every season and every episode has been complete garbage or every season and every episode has been an absolute dream. I just don't know. But listen, like running a show, you know, I just had a friend of mine write in, oh, I just started watching New Girl, right? Uh, the Zoe Deschanel show, New Girl. It's actually a really good show. I was I was surprised by how charming that show really is. At any rate, it's a good show, but guess what? They had they had one or two pretty weak seasons. Same writers, same cast. Or, you know, look at the the Michael Jordan Bulls. They lost games. They lost games, same players, same coach, same blah, just and they lost games. Every one of, I keep saying that one of the biggest mistakes we as film fans and, and and storytelling fans make is we just think it's easy to do that. It's just, it's easy to make a good movie. It's easy to make a good show. Oh, and you made a good movie once. Oh, then you're, then you should never make a bad movie. Oh, you had a good season. Well, then you should never have a bad, you should never have a bad season. You know, it's very, very, very hard to make good entertainment that connects with a lot of the audience. It's very, very difficult to do. And so again, I'm all saying this though, as a guy who's never watched Dr. Who, so I don't know, but just because they've had some strong seasons, you shouldn't be shocked that they maybe have a weak season or two. And I'm not saying the last couple seasons have been weak. I've never watched them, but it's something we should really shouldn't be all that surprised about. Anyway, uh, next up, uh, Slim Kim writes one of two. I know you think uh, Kathy Kennedy should step down now, but I'm with Rob. Just because she announced uh, these shows slash movies and puts everyone in place doesn't mean it'll be enough. If she just announced the sequel trilogy and left before it happened, uh, people wouldn't hold her responsible for the way you feel it turned out. With Star Wars turning around in order to cement her Lucasfilm legacy, she needs to be there for how these shows, movies turn out as the one who put it all in motion and overseeing it. Uh, no, that's not true. And the reason that's not true is because that cycle never ends. There's never going to be a point in time 
when there's not a bunch of announced shows and movies yet to come out. It's a constantly moving circle, right? And listen, I have never thought that Kathleen Kennedy should step down because I didn't like Rise of Skywalker. I thought she should have stepped down long before I ever saw Rise of Skywalker. And, and, and again, I say this, let me lay the ground for this. I say this as somebody who is a big fan of hers. She is one of the greatest film producers in the history of Hollywood. Steven Spielberg says she's the greatest producer in the history of Hollywood. But being a great producer, just because you're good at one thing, maybe even the best at that one thing, does not necessarily mean you're going to be great at the other. Uh, we were just talking about Michael Jordan. Greatest, in, to many people, the greatest basketball player of all time. Oh, then he's going to be an awesome coach. And he'll be an awesome GM or an awesome team president or an awesome... Guess what? He doesn't have the best track record of any of that stuff. I'm not saying he's been the worst either. I'm not saying that, but you know, just because you're great at the one thing doesn't mean you're gonna be great at all these other things. Like this is the argument I always have people when people say, Oh, you know who should uh, run Lucasfilm? Dave Filoni. What the fuck does Dave Filoni know about being an executive of a large company and, and running a large organization like that? Nothing. Just because he made, you know, some really uh, enjoyed cartoon shows doesn't mean that by default he is the next executive of a corporation to run the overall organization. They're completely different things. The greatest hockey player of all time, Wayne Gretzky, oh, then he'll be a great coach. He's the best hockey player that ever played. He didn't have the best coaching record. He tried coaching for a while. Didn't turn out great. Because you got to recognize when they're two different things. Anyway, Kathleen Kennedy, one of the greatest producers of all time, was not able to transfer. It was not able to transfer over to being the, the president of a studio. And my issues have never been that I didn't like the movies that were coming out. My issue was that she fundamentally was dropping the ball on the two most important jobs she had. Important job number one, which is the most important job of any studio head to me, which is making sure you are 100% on the same page with your directors and your directors are 100% on the same page with you. It is okay for a studio every six, seven, eight, nine, ten films you go through that, oh, we lost a director here or we lost. She literally had this one stretch where in four or five movies, she had lost like six directors. It's just, you can't have that happen. You cannot have that happen. And it's something she never had to deal with being a producer before, but now this was different. It wasn't working. The second main thing was, if you are going to launch a new Star Wars trilogy, you have to have an overall plan for that trilogy. And while I loved The Force Awakens, I love that movie. I think it's great. And I, I, I like The Last Jedi with some issues, and I hated The Rise of Skywalker, but the thing is, you can just tell by the time... You got to the end of the second movie, and clearly by the time you got to the end of the third, there was no plan. They never had a road. They never sat down and, and kind of charted out a roadmap. These are the main keystone points that we need to hit in this trilogy. I'm not saying they had to write all three scripts before they started shooting, but at least have a general plan with some flexibility to change directions if you want. But they just never had a plan. They, they winged it. They winged it the whole way through. And that's, that's why now, listen, I applaud Kathy Kennedy 
for what they have done now. Mandalorian has been a massive, massive hit for everybody. Uh, everybody's very excited about the new slate they've announced. This is a high point now. You know, you've taken leadership and you've put all this stuff in place. I believe now is a good time for her to write off and let a new head of studio come in, whether it's a John Favreau or probably somebody you and I have never heard of before. And, and take it the next way. And then that person will leave Lucasfilm 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. And the next person will come and take it over. But I, I still do think now's a good time for her to go. I still believe before the, I think I have no, just so we're clear on this, I have no insider information. I don't know this as a fact by any stretch of the imagination. This is just me uh, making a guess. I still think she is not going to be at Lucasfilm by the end of 2021. I think she's going to get everything in place she wants in place. And then I think she's going to exit out on a high note and resume a very successful producing career. But again, don't, that's no scoop. That's just me guessing. Just, just so we're clear. All right. Thanks a lot for that. Slim Kim. All right. Next up. Forgot my lunch rights. Hey, John, being a huge Patrick Stewart fan, my uncle told me to watch I, Claudius. I saw that ages ago. Uh, it was old, but the acting from the cast was incredible. Got me thinking about the movie of Cleopatra and the two actors uh, to play Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony, and you being an Italian, are you a fan of Roman movies? Well, I mean, listen, none of those were proper Roman movies. <laughs> Let's just be clear. It's not like those were made uh, by uh, by Italians. Um, no. No, but listen, I love Caesar. It's it's actually, you know what? Um, not many people know this, but whenever I do a mic sound check, um, you know, everybody, checking the microphone, checking one, two, three, checking the microphone, one, two, three, four, five, right? That's the general thing. For years, my mic check routine, and people laugh at me when I do it, but my, my, my mic check routine is quoting Caesar. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, and so let it be with Caesar. You know, I, I actually kind of quote Caesar whenever I do my mic check, because the reason I do that when I'm doing a mic check is so you actually get true um, reproduction of things the way you would actually speak. You're hitting different syllables and uh, and and different emphases on words, and that's the only that's the best way to get a good sound check rather than just one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, right? Why did I get into that? Oh yeah. Anyway, so I am a big fan of Caesar, but no, I don't, I don't necessarily, but I'm also a big fan of just the big epic films, right? So you go to like Ben-Hur, you know, which centers very much around the, the Roman empire, right? You go into to stories like that. I love that stuff. I really do, but I wouldn't call them Roman movies per se per se. That's just me. All right. Thanks for that. And thanks for bringing up I, Claudius. I haven't thought about that one in a long time. All right. Russell Amador writes, Hey, John, by any chance, have you seen the movie Driveways? It was the final film of the great Brian Dennehy. I've not seen it. It was a very moving movie and solid performances throughout. I find myself thinking this was a real life version. Uh, this was the real life version of Up to some degree. No, I am not familiar with this. Let me look this up here. What's it called? Driveways. IMDb, Brian Denny. It's a 2019 film. Um, Brian Dennehy, Hong Chao, Lucas. Oh, I know this movie. Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, take it back. This isn't the movie I was thinking about. No, 
I am not familiar with this movie. Uh, a lonesome boy, just so let me bring this up here. Uh, a lonesome boy accompanies his mother on a trip to clean out his late aunt's house and ends up forming an unexpected friendship with, the, with a retiree who lives next door. You know what? I, I, was, I was really bummed out when we heard about the passing of Brian Dennehy. He might, might be, there's an argument to me, he might have been the greatest character actor of all time. I mean, he could just load into any movie, in any show, any role. I, I even watched him on Blacklist. Blacklist is one of the shows that I watch. And he could just come into anything and he could dominate a screen. And he always had this great presence. And he could even, he could be very funny and comedic at the same time or like really deadly serious drama. I But no, I, I never did see Driveways. Uh, I don't even think I've heard of this one. So thank you for putting that on my radar. If I get a chance... It said it came out in May of 2020, but if I ever do get a chance, if it comes across my radar again, I might have to watch that. Thanks for the recommendation on that, Russell. Appreciate that. All right. Sergeant Ward writes, Hey, John, have you seen the trailer for Lockdown? Yes, I have. Anne Hathaway steals a diamond during lockdown and Doug Lyman directing. Uh, he must prepare for, he must, he must be preparing for space by filming a host, by filming in hostile environments. What did you think of the trailer? I thought the trailer was good. I thought the trailer was quite good. I'm looking forward to it. I like Doug Lyman. I'm obviously a big fan of Anne Hathaway. I'm a big fan of Chew Tell Edgy of Four. Who is the... Hold on a second. Let me bring this up. Uh, locked. Uh, who is the... Oh, it's Stephen... Stephen, uh, Stephen Knight wrote the screenplay. Not to be confused with Stephen DeKnight. Uh, Stephen Knight wrote... But listen to this thing. Listen to the rest of this cast. Uh, besides Anne Hathaway and Chiwetel Ejiofor, two of the best in the business right now, Ben Stiller, love him. Mindy Kaling, really like her. Sir Ben Kingsley, Stephen Merchant. I mean, it's a really solid cast. It's a really solid cast. I am quite looking forward to this. And of course, Doug Lyman is supposed to be doing that movie in outer, like literally him and Tom Cruise are going to go to outer space to shoot at least part of a movie actually in outer space. Not just using a soundstage somewhere. They're actually going to go to outer space to shoot a part of that movie. So we got to keep our eyes on that. All right. Anyway, next up, um, Achilles writes, Hey, John, I just recently watched all of the Star Wars movies and I had that. I, and I, had, I just recently watched all the Star Wars movies as I had only seen a few before. Darth Vader was an incredible letdown for me. He was not only not the, the God level villain that I had been told, he wasn't even a decent villain. Uh, even though the prequels are far from great, I thought Anakin's story arc was better than Vader's. Anakin showed he had the potential to be anything, but his story died when he became Vader and because of his injuries became just an average Sith. Um, you know, I, I could listen. If that is your impression of it, that is your impression of it. It's all subjective. If that's the, the way it hit you, that's the way it hits you. And I'm not going to try to undermine how you felt about it when you watched it. Clearly, I, I disagree with you in the strongest terms. Uh, he is the greatest cinematic villain of all time. And uh, that's just the way it strikes me and a lot of other people. But again, that doesn't undermine or devalue your experience with it. You saw it that way. You saw it that way. I personally thought Anakin's story was an absolute joke, but you felt differently. And there are others who feel differently too. And that's the great thing about these movies, man. The great thing about movies is that we can all have these different experiences and different emotional interactions with movies because they all hit us in a different way. And yours was clearly very different than mine. 
So it is what it is. I disagree, but I'm glad you had the experience you had, Achilles. All right, next up. Uh, Russell Amador writes, Hey, John, you speak of days uh, of where you had long hair while in a band, yep, and the breakdancing period, yep. Do you think we'll ever see any footage of pics of said days? Nope. No, 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 no. As far as I know, you got to remember, I was breakdancing back in the day, the days before global we all carried around global audiovisual telecommunication devices in our pocket where anything is happening you can pull out your camera and start shooting it right there like that that wasn't the day if you wanted to record something back when i was breakdancing you had to have a vhs video camera that you could carry around and shoot as far as i'm aware there is only one vhs tape of me breakdancing and uh, it was with the rest of my crew because, you know, a group of break dancers at the time was called a crew. Uh, and it is in a box in the archives of the Campia Ranch up in Canada, never to see the light of day. Uh, you might, if I can dig up some of the, I, I think I can probably dig up some of the pictures of me with my longer hair. Maybe I can find, uh, find some of those. I'll see if I can find some of those. Uh, but this is again is back in the day when we weren't all carrying around cameras in our pockets. But yeah, I had the hair down to here. What was really funny though was there was a very short period of time when I was into breakdancing that I had um, kind of longer hair, but really sh- cut short along the sides. And in the short hair part, I bleached blonde. There was a product called Sun In that would basically turn your hair blonde. So I had my regular hair color on top and the back. And then in the short, short hair on the side, I turned that blonde. And then I had lightning bolts shaved into the side. Oh my God, that was a sight. Yeah, it didn't take me long to realize that was a mistake. I think I, think I thought I looked cool for about 10 minutes. I think there was like 10 minutes where I thought I looked cool. And then I was like, you, you, you look like a fool. But anyway, and, and those will pictures will be pictures that will never see the light of day. All right, next up. Uh, Sergeant Ward writes, do you think Star Wars is going to lose its specialness? Uh, we're going to get three movies, possi- possibly trilogies. And like, a, and like a billions of TV shows on Disney+, Plus, I'm optimistic, but I'm worried that Star Wars is going to suffer from overexposure. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, there's, a, there's definitely a part of me that feels that way. You know, if you go back to the early days of Jedi Council and stuff like that, there were there were times when we would have discussions about, you know, should Star Wars be doing two movies a year? And I'm like, no, I I wasn't worried about overexposure. Overexposure is not something I was worried about. Right. Because you take. uh, Let's just go back to Breaking Bad. Right. I can't remember how many episodes there were a year. I don't know. For argument's sake, let's say 10. I can't remember exactly. You literally got 10 one-hour mini-movies every year. Did you suffer from overexposure of Breaking Bad? No. So then why would two movies a year be overexposure? I was never worried about overexposure. My thing is, the rarer something is, the more special it is. So that's kind of why I always wanted them to keep Star Wars to like one movie a year. That being said, look at the MCU. It all comes down to quality. 
winning cures everything. If something is bad, two in a year is too much. If something is consistently great, five in a year is not enough. It all comes down to quality. Now, look, I'm not saying Star Wars has to do everything to the quality of the Mandalorian. You're, I'm sure we're going to have some things that are a little bit better than Mandalorian. I'm sure we're going to get things that are a bit worse than Mandalorian. The important thing is try to keep it in this space, like a little bit better than Mandalorian, a little bit worse than Mandalorian, but it's all in here. Not like, well, something's amazing and something completely sucks. You know, that can be, but if you can bring, if Lucasfilm can bring consistency to the quality of their programming, some things will be better than others as long as you don't have too high of highs and too low of lows. But if you just consistently put out good content, good, solid content, then look at what the MCU has done. They're putting out three or four movies a year. And now they got all this, these Disney Plus shows. And the key will be, and guess what? If every other one starts to stink, not everyone, but every other one starts to stink, guess what? People are going to get tired of the MCU real fast. Same is true of Star Wars. But if they're able to maintain a certain quality level, then no, I'm not worried about overexposure at all. Again, if people can watch 20 plus episodes of The Office in a season in one year per year, then I don't see why, you know, the Star Wars stuff would be an issue. It's all going to be about the quality. It's all going to be about the quality. All right, next up. Hey, John writes, hey, John, I heard George Clooney never wants to work with David Fincher again. He never said his name, but he definitely implied him because of his meticulous nature. I thought actors would jump at the chance to work with a master of the craft like him. Well, I mean, first of all, let me, let me say, I never heard George Clooney say that. Paul saying, let me just see if I can bring something up here. George Clooney, uh, David uh, Fincher. Let me see what he had to say about that. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a, there's a great thing here where he says, George Clooney says David Fincher's favorite, most used phrase on set is shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I don't know. Just listen. I think what can be true is everybody has person has a personality type and every personality type there will be another personality type that just does not work with them. That may work well with other people, but not with them. Um, and so it can be very unique. There are people I have worked with before. Listen, I have worked with brilliant people uh, over the course of my career. Um, and, you know, there are some of them who are brilliant that I would not rush out to work with again. It doesn't take away that I think they're great, but I would not want to work with again. And then there are others who I would. And that's not a negative statement on those who I wouldn't and those who I would. It's just saying, you know, they're different personality types. Now, again, this is all coming from me having not read what whatever George Clooney's particular gripes are or beefs. But <clears throat> my first impression of that is simply like, listen, at the end of the day, writers, directors, producers, uh, actors, whatever, we're all just people. And all people have certain personality types and every personality types has certain other types that they just don't, you know, they, they just don't fit with very well. That doesn't mean anything mad about you. It doesn't mean anything bad about them. It just means, Hey, you know, some styles of personalities don't click. 
So again, I, I, I'm I'm talking out of my ass here because I just I don't know what the particular George Clooney situation is. But just because a director is a great director, if you've worked with that director before and you know, hey, it just it was oil and water, man. It just didn't work with us. That director's great, but I I wouldn't want to work in that environment again just because it's not good for me. Hey, that that's not saying anything bad about the actor. That's not saying necessarily anything bad about the director. It just means hey, they just have personalities that don't work well together. Nothing wrong with that. It's all okay. Sun still shines. But again, maybe I'll feel differently if I read George Clooney's comments on that. All right, next up, we got James Welsh who writes, top 10 last year, promising young, uh, prom- last 10, top 10 last year, 2020, uh, promising young woman, Sylvia's love, Ma Rainey's uh, sound of metal, never rarely, sometimes, always Palm Springs, Summerland, Borat, bad boys, minus the ending. Was bad boys? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, minus the ending, Unpregnant. Again, I never did do a top 10 and nor am I going to for 2020. It's just too much of a asterisk laden year that to me, there was, I know there were some point people disappointed that I decided not to do any sort of best of 2020 or top 10 of 2020. It just was too much of a write-off of a year. I will tell you that yes, trial of the Chicago seven was my favorite movie of the year. I will tell you that the gentleman was my second favorite movie of the year because that was my favorite movie of the year until I got to uh trial of Chicago seven. But other than that, I just, and I did see a bunch of films and there was a bunch of good films. It's again, it's such an asterisk laden year that it just wasn't, it didn't make it to me. There was just no point in doing a top list of any kind. Cause for me to do a top list of 2019 and a top list of 2020, that implies that there's an equality there, Right. When there's not, this was a very fundamentally different year. So a movie making a top 10 list of this year really isn't saying much, in my opinion. It's just not saying much because it was such an aberration of a year. But uh, it is. But hey, man, I'm glad you found a bunch of films that you loved. And I'm glad that you listed them for us, James. Thanks for that, man. All right, next up. Uh, James Welsh also writes top 10 most anticipated. Now this, we did do we, Rob and I did do a most anticipated of 2021. Anyway, quiet place Two, absolutely unbearable weight of massive talent. That one, that's the Nick cage one. It's going to be interesting to see how that turns out. Uh, Spider-Man three West side story. I wish I could. Cause to me, Sp- Steven Spielberg is the greatest director of all time. I just can't get excited about West side story. I don't know why, but I just can't get into it. Anyway, top gun Two. James Bond, No Time to Die, Dune, Last Night in Soho, that's the upcoming Edgar Wright film, and Coming to America 2. I, I, I was excited about Coming to America 2. I'm, I'm still excited for it, but the trailer wasn't great to me. The more I thought about it, and the more I watched it, because I watched it a good five or six times, I don't know. Not quite doing, but yeah, a number of your films that you got there, I've got on my list too. I think 2021 is obviously partially because a lot of the 2020 films have been moved into 2021 as well. I think 2021 is going to be a great year for movies. You know, once we get to maybe May or June and we actually start getting them, but we'll see. All right. Thanks for that, James. Next up, uh, James Hall writes, John. I don't love Man of Steel as much as you do. I I don't think many people love Man of Steel as much as I do. Uh, But I do think that Hans Zimmer's score is amazing and gets overlooked because it's unfairly compared to John Williams' iconic Superman score. Your thoughts, thanks for all you do, and keep up the filthy. Listen, we just have to understand that while they are both Superman themes, 
They are two separate pieces of music. And even more importantly than that, we have to understand that each piece was written for a different Superman. The Superman that John Williams composed his iconic score for, that Christopher Reeve Superman, was a very, very different Superman than the ones Hans Zimmer had to make his score fit with in Henry Cavill's Superman. They're very, very different. Now, every year, Anne and I go to uh, the John Williams concert. Obviously, there wasn't one this year. And I don't know if there's going to be another one again. Every year, he conducts a little bit shorter because he's, he's getting older, right? But we would go to the Hollywood Bowl every year. Let me see if I can find a picture of this. Uh, uh, Hollywood Bowl concert. Let's see if I can just find an image here. But uh, Anne and I go to this concert every year. And it's always called the John Williams Maestro of the Movies concert. And it's done at the Hollywood Bowl, which is an incredible venue. Just an absolutely incredible venue to go to and watch a show at. It, it's amazing. This is a, a great shot of it there. I, I should have just pulled up. I've pulled up. I've taken lots of footage and lots of pictures and put them up on my social media. So you've probably seen that before. Anyway. So he does this concert every year, Maestro of the Movies, where he plays through a whole bunch of his things. And the thing is, John Williams has written so much movie music that most years it's a completely different set that he does other than a few key pieces like he'll always play star wars because that you know the audience is there people show up with lightsabers and literally let me see if i can find uh one of these literally when he starts playing star wars at these things this is a good example of this i think when he starts playing star wars music uh all, all of a sudden everybody in the audience uh, the, uh, the whole place just lights up. The whole place just lights up. And you, you just, this is actually not a good representation because I'm telling you, I have been there when it's like every third person there raises a lightsaber in the air. It's an incredible sight to behold. It really is. Anyway, with that being said, more than the Imperial March, boom, but you know that crowd goes crazy or when the the opening hits of the star wars saying you know everybody loses their mind but i gotta tell you every year and he only plays this one song about every other year he doesn't play this one every year but on the years that he plays his superman theme when, when that starts with that one lone horn the place loses their minds. Hollywood Bowl loses its freaking collective marbles. They go nuts. And it's great. I mean, that song is so great. But the Hans Zimmer Man of Steel theme, particularly the piece that's called What Are You Going to Do When You're Not Saving the World? I know it's a long title, but that piece in particular, what are you going to do when you're not saving the world? It's, I, I've told this story before, but when I get in the shower, 
I have certain pieces of music I listen to because I'll take a shower. Like I'll get up, you know, early in the morning, get everything prepped for the show on top of the, the work I do on the night before for the show. I get up early, get the final pieces all put together, ready to go. Then I go take a quick shower. And when I'm taking my shower, I'll put on some music or whatever. At least once a week, I put on Hans Zimmer's Man of Steel. What are you going to do when you're not saving the world? I, I just put that on. That music flows through you and gets you pumped and excited. And it's just an incredible piece of music. But to your point, James, you got to remember, not only are they two completely different pieces of music, they are pieces of music that were each written for a different kind of Superman. And um, I understand the comparison, but you also got to remember, it's a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison, not apples to spaceships, but apples to oranges comparison. It's a little bit different. Anyway, glad you brought that up, James, because I, I love both of those pieces of music. All right. Willow writes, if releasing your breakdown, back to the breakdancing videos, if releasing your breakdancing videos to the public will magically ensure that the Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup, would you do it? Nope. Hey, listen, I bleed blue and white. I bleed blue and white. Uh, I have, I have been to this day, you know, everybody, oh, my sports team doesn't win. Guess what? The Toronto Maple Leafs have not only not won the Stanley Cup, the Toronto Maple Leafs have never been to the Stanley Cup as long as I have been on this earth. What do you got for that? What do you got for that? Oh, boo-hoo, your team. Oh, boo-hoo, my team hasn't made the playoffs in seven years. Oh, boo-hoo, my team, the greatest team, God's team, participating in God's sport, hockey, has never even, the most iconic hockey franchise on the planet, the Toronto Maple Leafs, have never even been to the finals as long as I've been alive. That is a streak of futility. And most of those years, they never, they've never gone to the playoffs. But anyway, yes, I bleed blue and white. But even then, even then, no, Willow, I would still not release. I'd have to give it some thought for a second, but no. Even then, I would still not release the breakdancing videos because I would never hear the end of it. All right, an anonymous viewer writes, uh, rewatched Aquaman recently. Is it just me or is it basically a retelling of the Ethereum legend of King Arthur and the Excalibur? Well, no, that's something that a lot of people talked about when it came out, right? The whole thing about, I mean, basically King, whatever his name was down under the sea is basically your lady in the water. And the Trident is basically Excalibur and the whole thing of the myth. And yeah, I mean, there, there are, there are definitely a lot of similarities there. And I don't think that's on by accident. I don't think that those similarities are by accident. I think a lot was drawn on that stuff to really good effect. Listen, Aquaman is not man of steel. Aquaman is not Avengers. Aquaman is not, uh, the dark Knight. It, it's not like iconic filmmaking, but you got to remember, Aquaman came out at a time when D when DC really needed a win. Wonder Woman was really good, but they needed something else too. And Aquaman was just a good, fun, enjoyable movie um, and was an incredible success. Biggest success the DCU up until that point, or maybe even still had ever had. 
You know, it became the first film in the DCEU to cross the billion dollar mark, an Aquaman movie. Something that a Batman versus Superman movie that should have made a billion in its sleep and had the potential to make two billion, something that Batman versus Superman didn't do, a movie called Aquaman did. And uh, gotta remember, but yeah, absolutely. You're not the only one to recognize those similarities. There were there was definitely some inspiration uh, drawn there, no doubt. All right. An anonymous viewer writes. Uh, the Browns, who were down some players and their head coach due to COVID, just beat the Steelers, beat the tar out of them uh, at full strength in Pittsburgh in the playoffs. If this is a dream, I don't want to wake up. Seriously, the, one of the reasons I love sports so much is sports is actual real human drama. Cleveland had not been to the playoffs. I can't remember how many years. It's in the double digits. Had not. It's been even longer. I think Bill Belichick the coach of the Patriots, was the coach of the Browns. That's going back a lot of years. The last time they won a playoff game. And this year, the Browns make it to the playoffs. They're shorthanded due to COVID. Their head coach couldn't be there. A couple of people on their coaching staff couldn't be there. And they had to go into Pittsburgh and play the Steelers. And they throttled them. I mean, Steelers mounted a pretty good comeback, but they were like down 28 to nothing at one point. First play of the game, snap, goes over Roethlisberger's head. I mean, it was absolutely nutty. It's the craziest thing. Anything can happen in sports, man. That's one of the reasons why I love sports so much. All right. Just time for a couple more here, guys. Without going into detail, because I understand this isn't the place for it, I will say this. The events in Washington last week uh, will make for one hell of a movie someday. I'm also one who sent in the Brown playoffs comment, but forgot to write my name. No problem about that. And yes, again, I'm not going to go into the politics of it all. We, I, I certainly have my opinions about things that happened. This isn't the place for me to discuss them. But you're not wrong, Mike. You're not wrong. That's going to make one hell of a movie someday. Maybe Oliver Stone or Quentin Tarantino will make a movie about it, but it will make a hell of a movie someday. All right. Mike Schwenk writes, Hey, John, another viewer, uh, another viewer wrote in saying that you should check out Buffalo with Zoe D uh, Dush. And I wanted to just second his thoughts. Uh, just like them. She really impressed me in Zombieland too. Yeah, she was great in Zombieland too. Uh, so I, uh, so I looked into other movies and really enjoyed Buffalo. Huge crush. Yeah, let me bring that. I brought that up the other day. Let me bring it up again here. Uh, where, where are we at here? Buffalo. Uh, IMDB. Okay. Yeah, this one came up the other day. I never did watch it. Oh, yeah, because this one had Judy Greer in it. And I love her from like, well, she was in Ant-Man. She's she's Ant-Man's baby mama. In that, and she's great as one of the voices in Archer. I love her in that as well. And Jai Courtney is in it as well. Uh, set in the underworld of debt collecting. Just bring this up because we read this the other day. Let's read it again. Set in the underworld of debt collecting and follows. Set in the underworld of debt collecting and follows the homegrown hustler Peg Doll, uh, who will do anything to escape Buffalo, New York. And of course, we talked a little bit about the fact that I grew up right next to Buffalo. My hometown of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada is really only a, a stone toss away from Buffalo right across the border. And uh, that. And so I again, I am not really familiar with this film at all. Obviously, the IMDb user ratings, you can't really trust user ratings on IMDb, but the IMDb user ratings aren't that high, but whatever. But I'm not really familiar with it, but you are now the second person to send in that recommendation, Mike, and I appreciate that, man. All right. 
Next up, we've got UFC 257 will have a crowd, writes. When Dustin fought Holloway, everyone said the same thing. If that same Dustin shows up and gets Connor in deep water, I think he'll win. I said he would beat Max and nobody believed me. Uh, I like Connor, but it will be a fight. P.S. Watch Kingdom if you love MMA. I've been watching Kingdom. I'm about five episodes in. Not bad so far. I, I don't think it's great yet. I'm not to the point that I'm willing to call this a great show, but I'm liking it. Frank Grillo, Frank Grillo is fantastic in it. I really like Frank Grillo. Um, so I, I'm good with that. And uh, Jonas Boy, he's actually pretty good in it too. I got to give props. So not bad so far. Um, yes. Yeah, you bet your ass that uh, he can beat McGregor. I'm not sitting here saying he will beat McGregor, but... You've got to know he can. When you watch that fight against Holloway, and even that, uh, who's the kid he just fought last? So that was what, like, they, the two guys just beat the hell out of each other. Poirier can take massive shots and still fire tons of offense. So a lot of guys, once they start absorbing a lot of shots, they start to fade, right? Not Dustin, man. I mean, he, he so can he beat McGregor? Absolutely. Absolutely he can. I mean, McGregor lost to Nate Diaz, for heaven's sakes. So he's not invincible, right? No, no shade for losing to Habib Nurmagomedov. He is the baddest man on the planet. He is the, he's the best combat sports artist in the world. So there's no, no shame in losing to Habib. That's fine. But, I mean, the dude lost to Nate Diaz. So, you know, it is what it is. But, um, I, listen, if I had to put five bucks on that fight, I'm still putting, I would put it on McGregor, even though I want Dustin to win the fight. But I wouldn't bet 10 bucks because, yeah, you're damn right Dustin's got a shot at winning that fight. He definitely does. He's a bad, he's not, he's not the same guy that, that fought McGregor before. And McGregor's not the same guy either, but it's going to be a very, very entertaining fight to watch nonetheless. All right. Messi's the GOAT writes. I just spent the weekend watching the extended versions of The Hobbits and Lord of the Rings. That's a good run right there, man. Uh, while The Lord of the Rings is the better trilogy, Battle of the Five Armies is my favorite movie of the series. Uh, what's your thoughts on The Hobbit trilogy? Here's my thoughts on The Hobbit trilogy. To put just really um, simply, it was the fundamental mistake, and I'll explain why. The fundamental mistake of The Hobbit was when they went from two movies, because if you guys remember, The Hobbit was going to be done in two parts. The Hobbit was going to be two movies. And then, not long, not terribly long before production started, they made the announcement, I think they announced at Comic-Con, if I'm not mistaken, that they were actually going to split it into three. And that became a fundamental problem. Not just because certain things then got stretched out. Because remember, the three Lord of the Rings books were all longer. Each individual Lord of the Rings book was longer than The Hobbit. The Hobbit's a short book. So why Fellowship of the Ring could all be done in one movie, but The Hobbit needed two in the first place, but now you're doing it in three? So yes, you need to stretch some things out. But here's the real big problem. Let's look at the third movie, the final one, right? In the final movie, it was all payoff with no setup. 
all pay off with no setup. Here's a really good example of what I'm talking about. Without setup, payoff loses their emotional weight. And without emotional weight, action is just visual noise. Look at the scene when Thorin Oakenshield battles the White Orc, who was motion captured and voiced by, um, um, oh gosh, why am I freezing on his name? He only stayed with me at, uh, he only stayed with me at Comic-Con and was on my show before. Uh, I, I, I feel horrible that I'm freezing on his name and I cannot find it. I cannot find it anywhere. Anyway, uh, voiced by the guy from, it was motion captured and voiced by the guy from uh, Spartacus, whose name is completely eluding me. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, oh, it was right at the top. Manu Bennett. Manu Bennett. Manu Bennett, who, by the way, was also Deathstroke in CW's Arrow. So Manu Bennett, who played Crixus in Spartacus, one of my top three favorite shows of all time. And then he played Deathstroke, probably the best character they ever had in the CW universe uh, on the Arrow show. He was also the dude who played, he did the motion capture and the voice for the White Orc in the Hobbit films. Anyway, by the time you get to that scene, the big confrontation between Thorin Oakenshield and that white orc. Let me actually get the name of the white orc because I'm I'm freezing on the name of him. Uh, Azog. When you finally get to that scene of Thorin Oakenshield versus Azog, that you sh we as the audience should have felt this high tension and emotion. But the reality is we hadn't seen these two characters on screen together for two years. It had been two years since we saw these characters on screen together. The movie, the third film, and again, this just kind of illustrates the, the, the struggle that the Hobbit films had. It gives us the payoff without any setup. The movie needed to work in a way of either having a scene with them together or individually having flashbacks of their encounters with each other or whatever, because... Again, if we had had some of that stuff from the previous movie in this movie, then when they finally confront each other on that ice, it would have had a lot more of an emotional oomph, a little bit more of emotional impact, more of a punch. You know what I mean? But it lacked that. And in some of the other movies, it just felt like all set up without enough payoff. And it was just, you know what Bilbo says in Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, when Gandalf first shows up at his house, he says to Gandalf, I am old, Gandalf. I know I don't look it. But I feel like, and this is the analogy, I feel like butter spread over too much bread. You know, thin, like butter spread over too much bread. That, to me, kind of highlights the Hobbit films because there's a lot of good stuff in the Hobbit films. And I enjoy watching them. I do. I know some people hate them. That's fine. But I enjoy watching the Hobbit films. But it was thin. It was spread out way too much. You separated setup from payoff far too much. And it, it was just, it just felt like too much filler. A small book that was made into three movies. That was their fundamental mistake, I think. 
I think if The Hobbit had stayed as two movies, I think today we would look back on those movies in a very, very different way. I really do. Still a lot of good stuff in it. Still a lot of good stuff in it. But yeah, to me, the one fundamental fatal flaw and mistake of it was, again, them them making it... Uh, them making it like that. Anyway, uh, part two, the name writes, um, it's a show about this guy. I'm assuming since you're saying Alvy, I'm assuming you're talking about, uh, uh, about kingdom. It's a story about this, uh, this guy, Alvy played by Frank Grillo, who is a retired fighter. I know I watch the show, uh, who owns an MMA gym and trains his sons. There's one scene with Frank and Nick Jonas drinking, having, uh, a heart to heart talk. You start the scene off laughing. By the time it ends, you'll be in tears. Again, I am about five episodes in. I am not, I, I would not say I am loving the show so far, but I am enjoying it. I am enjoying it. You know, we're, I'm still just getting to know the characters and all that kind of stuff, but I love Frank Grillo in it so far. So far, I'm really, really digging Frank Grillo. All right, guys. Final question of the day we're going to take right now, and then I've got to uh, wrap this thing up. Uh, Miles writes, now that Deadpool is in the MCU, how likely will it be on top of his third film? Let me try this again. Now that Deadpool is in the MCU, how likely will it be on top of uh, punctuation guys, use a comma. How likely will it be on top of his third film at some point in the near future, maybe a year after the film, we get a Disney plus Deadpool show much like WandaVision where it would run like a sitcom could be really fun. Mm. It's possible, but you're not asking me how possible you're asking me how likely I, I, I would probably say not very likely. Yeah, I'm going to go not likely. On, on top of all the other problematic things that come with Deadpool and Disney Plus, uh, I don't think Ryan Reynolds has the interest in doing that. Ryan Reynolds is right now, by money value, as of right now, Ryan Reynolds is the second biggest movie star in the world, according to how much money they, they're able to demand. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, we just saw the list come out a little while ago. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is still number one. Ryan Reynolds, surprisingly, is number two. And being the number two most valuable movie star in the world right now, I, I honestly don't think Ryan Reynolds has much interest in, you know, taking a year out to do a eight-episode Deadpool, a neutered eight-episode Deadpool show for Disney+. Plus. So there, even without the Ryan Reynolds issue, I think there's there are other problematic things about it. I just can't see Ryan Reynolds being interested in it. I just I just can't see it. Now, that doesn't mean it's an impossibility. It is a possibility. But you're asking me how likely? My guess, and it's just a guess, is not likely at all. Uh, honestly, I don't think it would be very likely at all. But who knows, man? We live in a world where Jamie Foxx is coming back to play Electro again, so anything can happen. All right, guys. That'll do it for this episode of the companion videos. Thanks so much guys for being here. Special thank you to all of you guys who sent in these great questions. Number one, because you gave us really fun, interesting things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel by sending them in and all of us here involved with the show. Thank you guys very, very much. Don't forget guys tomorrow. The John Campion show is live again. We believe we have fixed out all of our streaming issues. 
I, at least I'm being told they've all been worked out. So tomorrow, the John Campus Show, 10 a.m., will be live. Me and Robert Meyer Burnett, we got a bunch of things we're going to be talking about tomorrow. I hope you guys will join us for that. Guys, don't forget, there's still a pandemic out there. Please do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That will do it for me for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name is John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye. <laughs>